Hello and welcome to The Swim Brief. I am Chris DeSantis and today I want to talk to you about inclusivity. I was at Bates College this past weekend, as I mentioned in my previous podcast, and I sat in on a team meeting to do some goal setting for the year. Just to set the tone right now for what I'm about to say, which will cover very little from the actual meeting, because I, I don't think that's really appropriate. It's it's more sort of the thought that it provoked in me. I, I will say it was awesome <laughs> and humbling to be included in a meeting like that. There's There's still a piece of me that is the guy who walked out of Colby College in 2006 with the hope and dream of being a college swim coach and who failed and gave up on that dream. It's one of the things I talked about when I was up at Bates. So I I don't take it for granted when a team or now multiple really amazing teams, teams that I admire, teams that um, I really want to be a part of, ask me to be involved with something like that, that they're doing. I wanted to use that experience and then the stuff I was thinking about that I had up in Maine as a jumping off point for a discussion of inclusivity. And I'm going to give a little bit of definition to that term um, because I think it's a term that a lot of people are familiar with. It's, it's buzzy, right? But I also think with that familiarity, there come a lot of assumptions. So strap in because I'm going to give you my positive psychology informed take on inclusivity and especially, of course, as it applies to the sport of swimming or, or how I view it through the lens of the sport of swimming. One of the things that is absolutely remarkable about swimming is that despite being a worldwide sport, the world of coaching is really, really small. Okay. And I, I had the privilege of coaching abroad. I coached in Denmark for three plus years and that expanded my borders a bit, but it is very hard for me to meet a coach that has more than two degrees of separation from me. I mean, also difficult because of this podcast, you know, now it creates situations where I run into people and they know of me through the podcast or they know me through my writing or just from, you know, being out there and, and doing stuff. Nothing that I've been involved with, uh, with the exception of probably flow swimming at the beginning has been really popular in the sport of swimming. But, um, it's like, I always tell people, um, I would rather have 10 people that are really interested in what I'm doing than a thousand people who are a little bit interested in what I'm doing. And I, I feel privileged. A lot of the stuff that I have do going on. I mean, people, the type of people that get interested in it tend to be very interested. And anyway, small coaching world, very hard for, for there to be a lot of separation. Um, and I would say basically swim coaching as a full-time profession is sort of like a small to medium-sized high school at least in U.S. terms. I don't know what you define as a small to medium-sized high school. Probably depends a lot about where you grew up. You know, if you grew up um, out in the middle of nowhere or, you know, if you grew up uh, in the suburbs or if you grew up in a city, you know, 
I, I went to high school, I should say, of about eight to 900 people. And I don't think that's that far. I don't want to put an exact number on it, but I don't think that's that far from what I would estimate the full-time coaching population of the sport of swimming in the U.S. is. And I'm talking about people who are making their careers solely off coaching swimming. And if I go back to, you know, the analogy of a small high school, in my high school, it felt as if there was a lot of stratification in that little subclimate. We all, quote, knew who each other were. But the reality was that we knew very little about most of the people and a lot about a few people. And you can call it clicks. You can call it whatever you want. But implied within that stratification was a lot of exclusion. You had a sense that you weren't welcome somewhere. And... Uh, I'm going to talk more about exclusion later because I think it's a little bit more nuanced. You know, the, the example that I just gave you, it's sort of like, oh, well, okay, got it. Inclusion, good. Exclusion, bad. No, that's actually not the point I'm going to end up making on this. But I do think that um, being that black or white about exclusion, you know, um, or even really like, I think a lot of what goes on in high schools, people exclude themselves. I, I remember having a hilarious interaction post high school with someone who, you know, we graduated in the same class. We were at some social event. I was like, Hey, I really get along with this guy. We didn't end up becoming friends or anything, but I did end up turning to him. And I was like, how come, like, how come we never hung out in high school? And then I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I think I, you didn't like me. And he goes, no, no, you didn't like me. Right. And we were both insistent that it was the other person that didn't like the, like the other. Right. Um, that's just sort of one example. I went to high school with my wife for two years. She was a, she was a student at my high school. We, went to, we were at the same high school. We never spoke to each other at any time during those two years. I'm certain of that. Okay. One final point to, to sort of round out this small high school, small world example and what I'm talking about in terms of inclusivity. Uh, this past summer, I did, I fulfilled like a lifelong dream, I will say. Um, I took a trip of a lifetime and I went to the Faroe Islands. People who have followed me back to the blogging days know that I had a period where I was obsessed with the results of a fairway swimmer, Pal Jonsson, who got to an international caliber. I mean, he was a medalist at international championships um, in distance. And it's an extremely cool story. I mean, he, he grew up training, learned to swim in a 16 and two third meter pool. Um, and that's what he trained at, I think through age 16. Uh, if I still remember my dates right, I'm sure if one of the Faroese guys is listening to this, he'll, he'll correct me. Um, and maybe they are because through that experience, I bonded with a couple of Faroese swimming figures, one who remains president of their federation and the other, the coach of Jonsson. And I remember the coach saying to me, you know, we were talking about, cause I'm always curious about this stuff growing up in a country of at that time, you know, roughly 40,000 people. He said, everybody thinks they know you. And once you get a reputation, it sticks. 
right? So the upside of this small world, again, that's a bit of a downside, right? That can be a downside. But the, the upside that I experienced when I made the trip with my wife and kids this summer was I was greeted at the airport by the president of the Federation. Shout out to Rokur. Okay. We were given a personal tour for the day. We got to, I mean, it's this kind of stuff you dream about when you go to a magical far off place. Um, we ate homemade waffles in a tiny little cabin next to a fjord that belonged to um, Golkor's family with him and his son. His, his daughter had, had made us the waffles. I mean, the sun was shining. It's, it's like, you know, it's a dream experience on top of a dream experience. And for a little minute, I felt included in something that I otherwise wouldn't have, right? That, that, that experience of, of um, a culture, a foreign culture. And there's that word again, included. So what does it mean to value inclusiveness? Now I'm going to get to some overall points. You know, I want to, this, this small world stuff is leading to something. I am always, my positive psychology um, philosophy means opportunity orientation. And I think there's an opportunity in inclusiveness. Um, one of those opportunities you have is, you know, with some of that familiarity, with some of that everybody uh, thinks they know you, Okay, you can make charitable assumptions about other people. And um, I'll talk more about the limitations of that. But that is something that I try to practice. Um, Peter Cesaris, the coach at Bates, is somebody that I have known. I mean, I've spoken to, uh, had some kind of relationship with in the sport of swimming for over a decade. But my trip up to Maine was the first time we had ever come within probably like a couple hundred miles of each other. First thing he did, give me a giant bear hug. Okay. And, and I wrote to him afterwards, I said something to him when I was on the trip too. I mean, that, that, that just sort of set the tone for me in a really positive way. It was so welcoming, so inclusive. When he introduced me to his team, because I went to, to, to speak to them later, like an hour later, he told them things in introducing me that I would never remember even to say about myself <laughs> to an audience. Uh, he turned the tables on me in a lot of ways. I'm usually the guy who's, you know, uh, sheepishly admitting that I've been watching somebody, uh, watching their, you know, what, what they've done, sort of their results uh, and, you know, keeping tabs essentially uh, on the people in this small world. Um, but he'd, he'd been taking his own notes and he, he brought them to the meeting in a, in a really wonderful way. Uh, and then afterwards, he took me out to dinner with his girlfriend. And it was just a lovely evening. It was a lovely experience. I mean, um, the next morning we were sitting in on goals. I watched his, his team do uh, a pentathlon. It was, um, it was a very rich experience for, uh, you know, I think I was only, was not even on the ground in Maine for 24 hours. Now that's all the peace and love you may say, Chris, but you know, aren't you the same guy who last week was lobbing bombs at Brett Hawk, right? And Brett Hawk's podcast. Um, and aren't you known mainly 
prior to the days of podcasting for lambasting other coaches. And I will say this. Um, first off, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think actually <laughs> something that, that, um, that is, I would improve about our tiny little community is I think we actually have to have more room for conversations, for critical conversations. I mean, I feel comfortable making the criticisms that I made of Brett or that I've made of other coaches because, um, you know, I put my name to them. I stand behind them. And if I were talking to Brett right now, I would be arguing this out with him. Right. Um, and, and by the way, I think that's another criticism I have of him is, uh, you know, I saw via his social media, you know, he's still on this jag about now he's interviewing all sorts of sprinters about whether they ever did a 2k for time or what they think about a 2k for time. And in the midst of it, he put an Instagram story, um, about Alexander Popov, one of the greatest swimmers of all time. Um, and somebody who was known for training quite a bit of volume, uh, throughout his career. And it sort of was like, well, how'd that work out for him in 2004? So he, he cherry picks, uh, Popov in the last year of his career, 33 years old, the oldest guy competing <laughs> basically at any significant level in the 2004 Olympics. And he had one bad meet. Um, the year before he was, he was a gold medalist <laughs> at the world championships at age 32, which is pretty spectacular. I wonder if any of the, you know, guys we're applauding now are going to have that kind of longevity in their career. But I, that's actually not the part that bothers me. The part that bothers me is, um, you know, I, and I, I, I made this point as well is that Brett's going to, Brett's had Alex Popov on his podcast and, you know, he's all chummy with him. Um, but I bet he's not going to have him on his podcast and actually engage with him on this conversation. So he's just going to talk to a bunch of people that agree with him and take shots from afar. And I don't think that's right. Um, but let me get back on track because I got a little off track there with Brett and let me make a second point about inclusivity right? Why it's not all peace and love because there's no inclusivity without exclusivity. So let me repeat that. There is no inclusivity without exclusivity. This is a principle um, that can be applied well beyond the term inclusivity. And I just want to stop and point that out a little bit. Um, and I'll, and I'll demonstrate it through another story that I share often about the year that I was both an assistant coach at Penn and I was in the positive psychology program. I offered a critique to a swimmer. I remember at one point that year, it's probably a pretty pointed critique and she snapped back at me. And by the way, I like ended up being a reference for this person for a job. We had a really nice relationship. She said, aren't you supposed to be the positivity guy? And I said, yeah. And you know what? There is no positivity without negativity. There's no inclusivity without exclusivity. There's no positivity without negativity. There's no kindness if the only thing you do is act kindly. Okay. When you don't have, you know, any boundary 
on something, it becomes meaningless. That's what I think. And as a small community, I think we have to balance both inclusivity and exclusivity for the health of our ecosystem. And that's because bad actors can do exponentially more damage than good actors within any systems. So good actors keep our sport the best thing ever created. They keep the wheels churning, but bad actors can destroy that quickly. And that's why, um, you know, I think it's fair to be quick to point out stuff that you don't agree with and stuff that um, you think is bad for the sport, because that sort of stuff needs to be resolved um, expeditiously. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good to exercise some caution in terms of inclusivity. And again, I'll, I'll return to Bates and, and actually a discussion, and this, this could be its whole own podcast, but just, just want to make a couple points about some of the other colleges I'm working with. Exclusivity makes inclusivity meaningful. So I was, I'm on deck weekly uh, with Princeton because it's within driving distance. And I, I just love the opportunity to be somewhere in person in an era when you can do everything virtually. Like, it's just so nice to be there with people. So I quizzed Matt Crispino and the other coaches. They were sitting around. He's the head coach of Princeton men's swimming and diving. I said, how many times do you think uh, I have formally applied to be an assistant coach here? And if you're playing at home, I'll tell you, it was three times. I mean, I've been coaching, as you said, only since uh, 2007. So we're talking about 16 years. So three times quite a lot. And each time I got filtered out such that I never spoke to anyone actually involved in hiring. I I didn't get anywhere near becoming an assistant coach at Princeton any of those three times. Um, And, you know, Matt was sort of like, well, you know, but none of those times were when I was there. But even in his case, I know he's a listener to the podcast, so um, we'll talk about this. Even though I never formally applied, probably at least a year more before I made an agreement to work at Princeton, I pitched him on, hey, like I'd love to be, you know, considered as a, an assistant coach there at some point. And he'd sort of been like, ah, you know. Thank you for your interest. You'd, you'd probably be fifth or sixth on my list. He was very, I asked, I always ask people to be really honest in this regard. And that's why I get these answers. If you're ever wondering what I'm telling one of these stories, like, God, I can't believe you said that to Chris. I ask for it because actually knowing that stuff is way better. I always think than not knowing. Um, and he said, but you know, you're welcome to try and be involved here. Um, I talked about in the example of Bates uh, early on, in my college coaching career, uh, Peter was somebody I looked up to um, specifically. He, had, he won a national championship at Kenyon, and uh, I just knew a lot of people that admired him. And, you know, he's just one of those people that there's just coaches out there and that you you just know who they are, because if you get within the like within the vicinity of them, they just start coaching you immediately. And so I don't even know how I really started talking to Peter in the first place, but I had the sense that like, this is a guy who could help me, you know, advance my, 
my career. And I was, I was um, trying to get some feedback from him on, on some like materials I was sending out to apply for jobs and stuff. And I just remember being like, this is shit. <laughs> and I'm sure he was nicer about it than that. But um, uh, I also like, you know, I have this emotional memory of being like really having my feelings hurt um, in that moment. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm learning in life. I'm a pretty sensitive guy. Um, and I'm learning what the opportunity is in that because even as I'm sensitive, I, I seek out this honest feedback and it's hard. Um, but it, it had somewhere at Tufts, another place I'm working right now. I'm going to be back there in a few weeks. Uh, I had applied, uh, six or seven years ago to be a full-time coach. I made it all the way to the interview round and I got rejected and boy, was I pissed. <laughs> Guess what? I referenced that rejection in my sales pitch to Adam Hoyt, um, the head coach there at Tufts. And even as I was doing this, as I was putting this together, I thought about Johns Hopkins, the fourth college that I uh, spoke at this fall. Um, they didn't even consider me for a coaching position. I, I think I applied there early on in my career as well. But let me layer another point on this. Okay. Cause it's really important. Probably my most quote famous current athlete that I'm working with came from a feeling of being excluded. Okay. When I was working at Jersey Wahoos, my boss, Paul Donovan, he asked me to come up with a list of coaches that could help one of our athletes, Henry McFadden realize his potential. We all saw, I mean, like I, I will tell stories about it for the rest of my life. Some of the stuff he was, he was doing in training. We knew that there was something special there. Um, but there was also just something he was stuck a little bit in his, in his mental process. And I sat down and I, I took the, I took the task really, really seriously. I drummed up a list. I think I got, I came back with three people and then I took a breath and I thought to myself, wait, <laughs> I can do this. And then I got a little bit hurt. I said like, wait a second, Paul knows me. Paul knows I can do this. Why didn't he just ask me to do it? And, but instead of just, you know, being sensitive and hurt and rejected and wallowing, I just plowed ahead with what I thought was right. So when I came back to him, I presented my list of experts, the ones I dutifully researched. And then I said, and, and I can do this basically. And I have to say that was more than a little risky because one of the reasons why a lot of us, I think, assume like ahead of time that somebody's going to reject us is, is it's self-protective, right? Like, if you don't even give somebody the opportunity to exclude you, well, then it hurts less, right? That, that exclusion, that, that really, really hurts. Paul decided in this case to put the decision back to, to, to Henry and the rest we say is history. Um, that partnership between the three of us uh, of which I will fully state, I played the most ancillary role um, resulted in Henry winning a silver medal at this past summer's world championship as a just recently graduated 17 year old high schooler. And I mention all of that because 
being excluded at all those situations at one juncture in some shape or form made being included an absolute joyous rush. So I want people to understand that inclusivity is amazing. And so is exclusivity. And understanding the relationship between those two things so that they they actually build and give each other meaning and you have an understanding of what you're trying to accomplish through your value of them. Um, it means that I'm enjoying the work I'm doing, not in spite of past rejections, but actually I'm enjoying it because of those rejections. So I'm all for inclusion. I'm all for making charitable assumptions about others. Exclusion balances it out. And I've started to look at, you know, rejection or exclusion, however you want to phase it as not a no, never, but a no for now. And letting that guide what I'm doing has made a giant difference in terms of the opportunity that I've gotten within the sport. That's all I've got to say about inclusivity for today. I hope this has been a fun journey for you. Please listen and follow. Give the podcast a rating. If you're interested in coaching, please reach out to me via christycoach.com. DM me on socials, Christy underscore coach on Instagram, CD Swim Coach on Facebook. And I'll see you soon.